All right, if you will take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the seventh chapter. We continue our progress through Hebrews. And I would ask you to join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We'll begin again at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 7. We'll read through verse 5, focusing our attention once more on verse 4. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us clarity as we consider this idea of greatness and authority. We ask you to give us understanding as we think about what it means to be privileged to be yours and to be privileged to be called out and to serve. We pray, God, that in this time you would convict us of our selfishness and you would turn us unto yourself with wholehearted determination to follow and to honor the risen Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the world sees authority and privilege as a bad thing. It says that privilege should be removed because it thinks that those who possess either authority or privilege should be stripped of them, demonized, or punishment. For we live in an age where privilege is equated to race. It's made into a vile thing. And authority is flouted as something selfish, something ruinous, and something evil. But Scripture paints a different picture. Scripture attaches privilege to the pleasure of God in choosing a people. And remember that that people is to be from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And in giving immense privilege to that people so that they may display the greatness of their God to declare the wonders of his love and to care for those who have been placed under their authority. In the world, according to God, greatness is in serving, authority is derived from the greater, and privilege is always centered around love and the sharing of God's glory. So I want to think with you about this exchange between Abraham and Melchizedek in the context of the fact that Abraham is privileged to be chosen of God. Abraham is privileged to be selected by God to be the father of his people. And as Abraham yields and submits to Melchizedek, acknowledging him as the greater by giving a tithe and by the worship that proceeds from that, we find that Abraham is representing the fullness of all who come from him in that submission. And that means that the authority and the privilege that belongs to Abraham as the chosen of God is for all of us being submitted to this one to whom he is yielding. 
Now remember, we, we see Melchizedek and we know that at the very least, he is a type of Christ. Although I personally think that Melchizedek is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And that Abraham is directly submitting to Christ in this act. But even if I'm wrong in that, and I acknowledge the truth that I might be, he might just be a type of Christ. It doesn't change what, what we see here. Because in the end, as Abraham submits to Melchizedek, he's teaching us something powerful about the reality of authority. He's teaching us something important about where it comes from and how it behaves. And he's teaching us what it looks like to be privileged of God to be called into a position of authority and to be given authority for the purpose of serving. So I want to think with you this morning about what this tells us about authority. And the very first thing is, is that God gives every man their place in the world. What you have, you have because God himself gave it to you. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we'll start reading at verse 6. So 1 Samuel 2. And verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down unto the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So this is the foundation of all authority, of all privilege, of all greatness. God himself is the one who raises some up to give them privilege and authority and greatness. And God himself is the one who reduces others into positions of subservience and weakness and captivity. (laughs) It is God's pleasure to establish the earth, to function in the way that it functions. And in the end, what we have to understand is that the authority and the privilege and the greatness of some is there because God himself has determined that it is best that they have this greatness, that they have this authority, that they have this privilege. Now, we may not always agree with those whom God has chosen, We may not always agree with the structure of the world and the way in which it functions. And when we see unrighteousness being perpetrated by those in authority, we are obligated to fight against that unrighteousness. But we are obligated to do it in a way that acknowledges that it is God who has established it in the first place. And we are obligated to fight against unrighteousness with an eye to submitting to the authority of God, even while we do it. There's a tension here. There is a tension in all obedience to Scripture. And it's something that we have to acknowledge, because clearly we live in a broken and flawed world, and clearly we live in a world where authority is abused regularly. 
How we respond to that says more about how we believe our God has established the world than how we see the things that people are doing. We need to be very careful about this, and we need to think this through very clearly because it has implications for all of our lives. This is the foundation of authority given even into governments. Romans 13.1 and 2 says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. So when we look at the way the government is functioning, we need to deal with our frustration with wrongdoing in light of the authority that has established the government. And we need to deal with it in light of the authority by which the government itself operates. We need to understand that we are not permitted to act recklessly and outside of the rule of law because we are ourselves under authority. Everything that God has given to us functions in the realm of his authority being distributed to others to act on his behalf. And that's the line that we have to hold. That's the line that we have to stand with. That's the line that we have to acknowledge, and that's the line that we have to live out. So this reality, then, comes to play, more importantly at this point, in how we see and consider what is going on in the world around us, that God himself has ordained and established, and our response has to be with that in in mind. We have to respond according to his word in everything that we do. Now, it also applies not only at the larger picture of government and world politics and all these things, and we'll come back to this idea in a little bit, but it also applies in how we ourselves view our privilege as being his children. Because if we recognize that we are called by God to be his own, and that we are called by God to be agents of change, then we recognize that the authority that calls us out and gives us our commission to be agents of change in the name of God is the same authority that established those for whom we are talking previously. We we live in this world of interplaying authority. We live in this world of obedience to our God first and foremost, but doing it in a way that honors Him. We are who we are by the pleasure of God, not by our choice, not by our will, not by our greatness. So when somebody says, well, you are just privileged, you need to recognize the simple truth that you are. Leaving aside all political connotations and all social connotations and and, and never mind the truth that if you grow up in this country, you are privileged out of all the nations in the world. Just to be here, you are privileged, regardless of any other thing in your life. Setting that aside, if you are a child of God, you are privileged beyond all others. You are the blood-bought child of the king of kings. That makes you princes and princesses, queens and kings under the name of God over all the earth. You are, as children of God, the lords of the earth. God has given you that authority. He has said, 
I will establish my church upon the name of Christ, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the authority that has been given to us as children of God. That is his privilege and his pleasure to make you his own. And as he has done this, it comes with the power and the responsibility to exercise the authority that you have been given. You are not free to live your life according to your own selfish desires. You're not free to live your life according to your own selfish pleasures. You, as a child of God, having been given this power and this authority, you live under the authority which has made you who you are. This is inherent in the reality of authority because authority is always derived from somewhere. It is derived from God. He gives the foundation of all differences between us according to His sovereign will. He chooses whom He chooses. He rejects whom He rejects. He says in Romans chapter 9, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. He tells us that He raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose that I might show my power and greatness in him. In everything that we do, we have to acknowledge that God is the one who is in control over every aspect of his creation, and he always has been. There has never been one moment since God ever was, which has been for all of eternity, in which God was not in complete control. This is who he is. And he has chosen to call us out and to make us his own and to give to us the authority that is a part of that by His will and by His election. And it's also His will to give us the privilege according to the dispensation of the fullness of the times of our lives. Think about Lazarus and the rich man. Right? Jesus gives us this this story. And, And of all of the parables that Jesus gave, it's the only one where we're given a name, which indicates something important about it. I don't think that Jesus was giving just a parable. I think He was saying, let me tell you about something I know. Let me tell you about somebody I know. Let me tell you about this man, Lazarus, and this rich man who had everything and Lazarus had nothing. And the Bible lays it all out and Jesus gives the account and Lazarus sat at the rich man's gates and the dogs licked his sores and Lazarus wasn't treated very kindly by the rich man. And then they both died. Lazarus was carried to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man was in hell. And the Bible tells us that in hell he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham and and Lazarus and still treating Lazarus like he was a servant. He said, hey, Abram, please send Lazarus down to give me some water. And they had this whole exchange about whether or not that could be done or would be done. But listen to what Abraham says in Luke chapter 16, verse 25. Abraham's son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now, he is comforted, and you are tormented. So just think about that for a minute. Who ordained those times? God did. Who established that priority? God did. For whatever reason that we cannot fully fathom, God, in his sovereign will, chose this outcome. He determined that the rich man would receive his fullness of blessings in this life, Lazarus would receive not the good things of this life, but after death, those situations would be reversed. And it was the good pleasure of God to do this. It's his right to give it. And it's his right to dispense mercy and privilege according to his will. 
this should give us pause. Because many times when we see privilege in this world as a good thing, we feel like the tables haven't been turned very fairly. We feel like, oh, these people who have this stuff and these people who have this power and these people who have this ability to ruin our lives and make the world a miserable place, they need to be punished now. Well, righteousness needs to be upheld and they might need to be stopped now. But in the end, punishment belongs to God. In the end, the ability to set all things right belongs to the hand of our God because His authority is the authority that established them in the first place. We need to recognize this truth and we need to rest easy with this because days are coming when we will see more and more evil upon the land. Now, it also applies in the realm of spiritual abilities and blessings that are given within the church. There is oftentimes a proclamation made that if you have one gift or another, that you are better than the rest of the church because you have this gift. Um, Let's just listen to how the scripture describes it. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll start reading at verse 4. So 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 4, it says this. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestations of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, and to another the workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discerning of spirits, and to another different kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So what does that tell us about these privileges, these gifts, these mercies that God gives for the advancement of the kingdom and the work of the church among the people of the world? Are any of these gifts greater than another? No. There's none of them that are superior to the other. The Lord distributes them according to his will and according to his purpose for the benefit of all. And God is the one who sovereignly chooses who gets what and how it is called to be used. And the arrogance in us that puffs us up and causes us to look down our nose at somebody who has a different sort of gift, it's foolishness and it should be abandoned. Because it is God who has chosen and God who has distributed. So for each of us, we need to strive to the full measure of obedience according to the light and the gifts that we have been granted. Instead of spending our time gazing upon what somebody else might have or how somebody else might be gifted or how somebody else might be called to be serving the kingdom, we need to recognize that God has given to us both gifts and ability and the accompanying responsibility to use what he's given us rather than to spend our time wastefully dictating what somebody else ought to be doing, what they've been given. Rather than spending our time being angry or jealous because we don't have what they have. 
because our church is little and other churches are big. It doesn't make any difference. There is no call for people to be jealous or, or upset about what God has chosen to do and how God has distributed his gifts. You've been called to be light and glory in the midst of your sphere of influence. And I promise you that if you will be faithful to do what you have been called to do, you will not have two minutes to rub together to worry about somebody else's called to do. Amen? And most of the time that we find people grumbling and complaining about what other people are doing for the sake of the kingdom, the truth is they're not doing anything themselves except grumbling and complaining. You see, what we're called to do is to be faithful with what's been given to us. And we're called to do that because it is God who has given it to us according to his goodwill and his good pleasure. It's God's purpose to advance his kingdom, and he will advance his kingdom. If we want to be part of that work, then we need to reframe our eyeballs and we need to refocus our attention so that our objective is to fully and completely advance the kingdom by the things that have been given to us. We need to seek to bring maximum glory to God through that which he has been pleased to grant us. And that begins with us being content with the lot that has been given unto us. Think about Abraham for a minute. Here he's been given all this great privilege. He's been given all this great authority and this promise by God that he's going to be the father of many nations. He's going to have more descendants than the stars of the sky and that the whole earth will be blessed through his seed. He doesn't fully realize that Christ Jesus, the Messiah, will come from his line, but he knows that something big is coming. Abraham has been given all of this power, all of this authority, all of this privilege, and yet God calls him to submit himself to this man, Melchizedek. God calls him to, to surrender a tithe. God calls him to give worship. God calls him to lay down what is his own earned thing. And it had to be just a little bit galling for him. There had to be some sort of wrestling going on in his soul. And I know this only because Abraham is a human being like the rest of us. This is a hard thing. And, and it's something that challenges us frequently. So we need to set ourselves to recognize the truth that what God calls us to do, it is according to his will and according to his power and according to his authority. And there will be times where you do not receive the praise that you think you deserve. And there will be times where you are praised extravagantly for things that you have done. And you need to learn to be humble when that happens. We need to learn meekness when we are ignored or mistreated. And we need to be content when others outshine us. And we need to rest in the joy of being of service to the king. Because in the midst of everything that we are called to do, our main objective is to serve our king. And how we go about doing that is a direct outflow of his sovereign will to give power and privilege and authority and greatness as he sees fit. It's his to do. Now, I know that this is a hard thing for us to get our heads around. Because in the end, we need to recognize the truth that God is the aim of that authority that we have been given. We need to hold very closely what is our purpose. And this is where a lot of times people get sideways when they start exercising their authority. 
We begin to think that somehow the fact that I have the power or the authority to do a thing means that I get to determine how it's going to be done. We see this in elected officials all the time. People are elected to represent the people, but they get to Washington and they think the only thing that matters is their desire. They they set themselves as arbiters over everything according to their own pleasure, never paying attention to either the people that elected them or the Constitution that is their authority. We need to recognize that this failing that we can see so plainly in them also exists in us. Because often when we're given responsibility or authority over a thing, rather than seeking the will of God to do it according to his will, we seek to please ourselves. We seek to satisfy our own desires. We seek to make it work according to how we think it ought to work. And this is our inherent humanity. This is our failing. And in the end, God gives and takes according to his pleasure to show his power and his authority. God takes and gives so that he might be glorified. And he calls us to delight in that fact. You hear what I just said? God calls us to delight in the fact that everything we do glorifies him. Turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Just a couple of verses, but I want you to see it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. I'm sorry, I misread that. Daniel, chapter 4. Wow, I don't know what my eyes just did. Keep turning. (laughs) More to the right. Daniel, chapter 4, verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomever he will, and he sets it over the lowest of men. Now, this is when Nebuchadnezzar is about to be knocked down out of his place of authority. And what's God's motive for doing this? What is his stated objective? To show to the sons of men that it is God's authority which drives this. To show to the sons of men that it is God's will to do this, to display who he is. And we are called out to display the exact same purpose. We are called to display the nature of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is our calling. We are called to honor our God, to give glory and praise and honor to him. And we are called to display his nature and his glory in everything that we do. The fullness of what this looks like. In a word, it is submission to God through our submission to the rightful authority that's been placed over us. 
Now, this excludes by definition when the authority that's over us commands us to commit evil. Okay? So put yourself in Nazi Germany. Was it right for the church to oppose the eradication of the Jews? Without question. Absolutely. Even though the authority that had been placed over them was commanding them to do this, the right thing was for them to resist that because the commands of the authority were evil according to Scripture. And there will come times where even good men will disagree about exactly how this fleshes out. You need to recognize the truth that you are answerable to God and you are answerable to your own conscience in how you obey God in regards to this. What I'm seeking to do is give you guidelines to make those determinations, not to pronounce a thus saith the Lord about your specific actions. Does that make sense to you? Because all of us, as we flesh this out, we may come to different conclusions about exactly how God calls us to obey him. But where scripture is plainly violated, our response is clear. Now, I knew we were going to look at Deuteronomy, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, turn with me to verse 47 of Deuteronomy 28. I got ahead of myself a little bit, I'm sorry. Deuteronomy 28, starting at verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Think about this for just a minute. God gives us what he gives us. He commands us what he commands us. He calls us to walk in obedience to those commands. And our response to that obedience should be joy. Our response to that obedience should be the joy of the Lord fleshed out in our lives so that we learn, and I know this is hard, and I fail at this all the time, But our response to this should be, yes, Lord, I am joyful in what you call me to do. I am joyful in my obedience. I am joyful in the place that you've given me to serve. And God, I'm even joyful in these miserable times. Because in these miserable times, we have been given an opportunity to display the abundant greatness of an awesome God. Think about it like this. In quiet times, without trouble or difficulty as pleasing as those times might sound, there is little opportunity to declare the greatness of God. For everybody passively goes along their way, and everybody quietly does their thing. But in times of conflict, in times when the world is being stirred up by evil, God calls us to stand in greatness and to serve with victory of heart and with fullness of of conscience and to say, Lord, wherever you put me, I have the opportunity to declare your praise and I have the opportunity to show the world who you really are. And the harder they squeeze and the tighter the days become, the clearer becomes the message of Scripture in regards to this. God calls us to serve him with joy. He calls us to lay down our own selfish desires for quietness And say, Lord, these are the days you've given. And since these are the days you've given, I know that you have given me a calling and a purpose and the ability to fulfill that calling and purpose. 
according to your mercy and according to your greatness. It's God's will that these days have been given. I've been telling the men this on Saturday mornings for weeks. These days have been appointed for us, but that also means that we have been appointed for these days. We need to recognize that truth. And and instead of crying about how we wish we could go back to the old days, we need to recognize that these days have been particularly crafted by our God for us to declare his glory in. And they may be uncomfortable, and they might be difficult, and I'm sure they're going to get worse. But I'm also sure that as the days increase in evil, so the church will increase in might. Because God will display his glory. He will establish the, the primacy of Christ over all the earth. We've been called to participate in this. We've been called to be a part of this fight. And it begins with us recognizing that God has a purpose in what he's doing. And instead of impotently moaning about how we are just so beset by a world that hates us and it's so mean to us and they don't have the right to talk to us that way. Instead of all of this garbage that we're so rapidly devolving into, we need to stand up and declare the truth of who Christ is and blast the consequences. It doesn't matter what they say and it doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter whether they cancel us. It doesn't matter whether they try to close us. It doesn't matter whether they try to kill us. It only matters that we speak the truth that has been given to us by our God and that we do it with joy. Not grudgingly, not hatefully, but joyfully to declare the fact that our God is triumphant. Because in the end, the truth is this. All men live under authority. Whether they recognize it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, every man from king to peasant lives under somebody's authority. Jesus himself demonstrated a right relationship to authority. When he spoke, he spoke with authority. Mark 1.22 says, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I love that because the people had been exposed to the word of God over and over and over again. They had been exposed to what God said and they kind of went, yeah, 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 because the scribes didn't know the God who they proclaimed. They didn't speak with authority. They spoke with their own authority, which was nothing. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one having authority. Because he knew the God that he served. And he knew that he himself was that God made flesh. But there was a relationship here which granted to Christ the authority to speak in ways that nobody else ever did. Because he spoke as one under authority. Remember I said all authority is derived? Even Jesus spoke as one under authority. John chapter 12 verses 49 and 50 says, I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now Jesus put this in the context of our eternal souls. Because recognizing that we are saved by grace puts us under the authority of God in our acknowledgement. Never mind the fact that all of creation is under his authority anyway. But when we are made his when we are called in to be sons of the living God, daughters of the living God. We are placed under his direct, acknowledged authority. And we no longer have the right to just go our own way and do our own thing and say our own words. 
We are called to speak according to His truth and to speak according to His commandment. And Jesus modeled this for us because when He was here on the earth as man, He Himself lived this out. He did not speak according to His own desire. He did not speak according to His own authority. He didn't just make it up. This is what gave Him the authority to cast out demons. This is what gave him the authority to speak truth, to command the waves to be still, to, to do all the things that Jesus did just by the simply the word of his mouth. It was partly the fact that he was God-made flesh, but it was also his active relationship to the authority of God while he was here as a man. He lived under the same limitations that we do because he was fully human. And he acted that way as one under authority of time, at all times because he wanted to obey the will of God in everything that he did. John chapter 5, starting at verse 19, says, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. That's a statement that just boggles the imagination. Jesus said, The Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Now this means that Jesus acted under all authority of God, and in the end he was given all authority. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Which means that Jesus himself had the authority that he was given. He he lived it out. But then, having been given all authority, he himself gave that authority to others. Now this tells us something really important about the authority that we have been given as sons and daughters of God. First of all, no authority exists for its own sake. You're not given authority just so you might have authority. Right? The world thinks that's how it works because in the mind of the world, authority and power are synonymous terms. If I have authority, I have the power to make you do what I want you to do. I have the power. (laughs) That's the way the world sees it. But that is not the true nature of authority. Authority does not exist for its own use. Authority does not exist unto itself. Authority exists for the sake of those who will be blessed by it. All authority is therefore to be used for the will of God. And authority does not make the user great. Authority makes them responsible for its use. You need to understand this. If you've been given authority by God, you also have been given responsibility for the authority that you have been given. That means that one day you will be called to an account for how you used what God gave you, for the authority that you exercised, for the way that you displayed God, for the way that you acted in accordance to His Word, for the way that you spoke what you knew, for the way that you made up what you didn't, (laughs) for the way that you behaved as a follower of Christ. The authority that is inherent in that position bears with it 
a responsibility for an accounting. That's the nature of authority. Because authority says, I imbue you with that which is essentially mine. That's why all authority is derived. It has to come from somewhere. God himself is the source of all authority. He gives it. He he hands it out. And everything ultimately comes back to him. When we give authority to somebody, we say, I give you the power to act in my name. Well, if I give you the power to act in my name and I give you everything that that goes with it, I'm going to expect you to give an account for how you used what I gave you because that's quite the magic bullet. That's quite the powerful thing that God has given to us. And Jesus gave his disciples the authority that he himself had earned by his blood. And he earned it because he was willingly submitting to the authority of the Father. 1 Corinthians 15. You might turn there if you would. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20. This is fairly remarkable. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under, his, under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, I can't give you the specific details of how the Trinity functions. No man can. Anybody who tells you they can is a liar. (laughs) The Trinity is a mystery given to us in Scripture, given to us by God's self-revelation. It's not something we would have dreamt up. But clearly, there is some order of authority given to the, the persons of the Trinity. And Christ himself submits to the authority of God the Father. Because the authority that has been given is derived from God. It is the way that everything works. And so when you begin to think, well, I don't, I don't want to use my authority that way. If I've been given this authority, I have power. I should be able to do whatever I want to do. Recognize the truth that even Jesus didn't live that way. And even now, after his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, he still does not live that way. He willingly submits to the authority of God the Father, because that is the dynamic reality of heaven. That's the dynamic reality of everything that God has made. So Jesus submitted to this authority, and Abraham also gives to us an example of what it is to submit to authority. We see him submitting to the authority of Melchizedek. We see him laying down the tithe of what he himself has given. He yielded to Melchizedek out of submission to God and out of a recognition of the greatness of this man. He surrendered the tithe and he engaged in worship based upon that relationship. Look, here's the truth. Every single one of us lives under authority. 
If Jesus lived under authority, if Abraham lived under authority, if, if the apostles lived under the authority of Christ, if every single person in Scripture who has ever come before us lived under authority, it's foolish for us to think that somehow we are exempt. We live under authority. We live under the authority of God. We live under the authority of His will in our lives. And authority itself is a privilege. This means that none may refuse to submit to authority and escape the consequence of that refusal. God will hold you accountable because you have the authority whether you choose to use it or not. What was the parable of the talents about? Well, it was about the gifts that God gave, and one of those gifts is authority. And the man who was rebuked was not the man who earned less than the guy who earned five. The man who was rebuked was the man who refused to exercise what he'd been given. For all of us, we need to recognize that though you may not have what somebody else has, you have what you have. You have what's been given to you. And with what's been given to you is a commandment from God to use it according to his will. What's been given to you is unique to you. You have been fashioned for the time for which you have been made. And you have been fashioned for your sphere of influence. You can reach people that nobody else can. Because you are unique to the world. Your calling is yours. But in that calling is a responsibility to use what God has given you according to his will and according to his purpose. This is what authority looks like. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9, it says this, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. It doesn't matter how great your privilege might be. You must still submit to the duty and the authority that has been placed over you. Privilege is always less than the duty it implies. That makes sense? You, you've been given great privilege as a child of God. And those privileges are blessings and wonderful things. But the duty that's implied in those privileges outweighs the privilege. Yes, you have the privilege to deny to obey. But you do not have the privilege to escape the duty that you will be held accountable for. You might have the privilege to refuse to do what God tells you to do. But there's a duty that's implied in your being called that outweighs that privilege, that outweighs that liberty, that outweighs that freedom. In everything that we do, we have to recognize that God calls us to his will and for his kingdom. Privilege and duty are thus inextricably linked. All privilege exists to either make us aware of duty or to enable us to fulfill it. Look at John chapter 13. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the nature of authority. And he begins speaking first by an action. 
starting at verse 11. Actually, let's start back at verse 4. Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, you will have no part in me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. And he said, Therefore you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Elsewhere, Jesus said, the leaders of the Gentiles think that authority is given to them to lord it over those who have been given. But what he did in this example is give us a clear picture of how to serve even while we have authority. How to serve those who have been given to us. How to serve those who have been entrusted to us. If, if we have been given this privilege and this authority, it's been given for a purpose. And given for a purpose that is larger than us. It's given for a purpose that is given in trust to care for those who have been given to us. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 say, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. You see, every gift and every ability is given in trust for the good of all. Remember what 1 Corinthians 12, 7 said, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. This means that everything that has been given to us has been given in trust. Whether it is your goods, your ability, your time, your money, your passion. It's been given to you in trust and not for your own pleasure. But so that you might serve those who have been entrusted to you. Beloved, hear me. The entirety of authority is a downstream proposition. It's focused on who we are serving. It's focused on who we're caring for. It's focused on those who are being watched over by that authority that has been entrusted to us. This is what privilege really means. It means that we have been privileged to serve, not to be served. We have been privileged to love. We have been privileged to be counted as refuse according to the world. But so that God himself would be honored by how the church manifests his love and greatness in times like these. All around us, the world is tearing itself apart while everybody struggles for ascendancies. But the church ought not to be a part of that chaos. Instead, the church needs to be serving 
and loving and administering that which has been entrusted to us, knowing who we are, that we serve the king of the universe and operating in the authority that has been entrusted to us to care for the, for the, for the helpless and the weak, to defend the fatherless, to defend the widows, to care for those who don't have the ability or the power to care for themselves. We need to do this because it honors our God And it is the very nature of the authority that we have been given. How is it that God cares for us? In that same manner. For none of us can do this on our own. None of us can outstretch our own frailty and our own failings. But God in his mercy saved us through the blood of Christ. God in his mercy called us out, chose us, equipped us, makes us his children. And that whole dynamic carries with it the responsibility of authority to care for those who are not yet a part of the kingdom and to care especially for those who are and are weak and helpless. We have a responsibility to do this. We have a responsibility to submit, which means that every opportunity for duty ought to be willingly and joyfully embraced. We use privilege in this way, and it becomes an act of worship. I want you to see that, and I want you to understand that. I don't want you to miss that that key thing. When you exercise authority in a right manner, it becomes worship. It becomes something that honors God. It becomes an act of service, not only to those who you are actually actively serving, but it becomes an act of service unto the God who called you and appointed you. It is a beautiful and glorious thing, and it is something that is rare and something that is completely misunderstood by the world. But it is something that the church ought to understand. This question of authority, this question of privilege, this question of greatness. Beloved, I want to say it again. Hear me carefully. If you belong to Christ, you are the kings, you are the queens, you are the lords of the earth. You have been given privilege that outstrips any elected or appointed position ever imagined. But that privilege is given so that you might serve, not so that you might be exalted. And in everything that we do, let our lives display the character and the flavor of the God who called us. Because it changes the dynamic of everything. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to recognize the the frailty of our own flesh and the the desires that rage within us, Father, that strive against these things. I pray, Lord, that you would allow that this, this poor attempt would be fruitful. I pray, God, that you would give clarity to my rambling thought and that you would plant your word deep in our hearts and cause each of us to be conformed to your image according to your will and purpose. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, and for his glory alone we pray. Amen.